Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the, the joy of meeting with your people. Um, Lord, I confess I'm, I'm coming at it a bit weary this week, uh, but you're good, you're able, and so we trust in you. Um, we want to lean into you and, and trust that you're going to work through what happens here today and work in your people in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Right, so um, today's passage. Oh, yes, and I'm going to pray for the kids as they go out, which I literally told my wife I was going to do about eight seconds before coming up here. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, please be with these kiddos. Um, raise them up to be more and more like you. Let them be genuine and in faith, know you, and please let them be built up through gospel kids. In your name. Amen. All right. All right. Now, um, we're coming at that passage that Mark read out for us us just before, Luke chapter 2 from verse 21. If you haven't got a Bible open already, uh, feel free to do so. Scripture journals count. Um, It's one of those bits in Luke's gospel, to be honest, that often we might be a bit unsure what to do with. Um, You know, it's it's a bit of a peculiar passage, you know. And Joseph, they come to the temple. Random guy grabs the baby. No one calls the police, oddly. Uh, and but uh, he lifts the child up in the air. He says some things. Another woman starts saying things, and then we kind of move on and, and skip a great deal of time between now and our next passage, really. Um, but actually, when we look at it, it's actually a remarkable thing we see here. Some remarkable things, and and I think it's important we place it in context. Um, when we when we read the Bible, you know, we're reading, and for us, it's just a moment between uh, what just happened. Uh, in in Luke chapter 2, 1 to 20, where, where Jesus was born and what's happening now. But, but that's not how it's experienced by the uh, people in this story. Uh, so let me ask you a question. Where were you eight days ago? Last Saturday, if you will. Writing a thesis on Facebook. Okay. So, sorry. In the garden? All right. All right. That, that period of time you're thinking about now, that's what's, that's what's past for Mary and Joseph and Jesus, those, those eight days. And then, and then between verse 21 and verse 22, another jump happens. It's not as explicit, but we find out that at the end of Mary's purification, so about a month, they come to the temple. Where were you 30 days ago? That's a bit more tricky, isn't it? Holiday. Holiday, where? Be more specific. Mary and Joseph would have been able to tell you where they were. Sorry? Wedderburn. You made that up. Uh, if anyone from Wedderburn ever listens to this recording, I'm so sorry. Uh, sorry? I, I concur, but still. Um, yeah, this is, this is what's happened. Imagine, imagine if you were Mary and Joseph in this context, right? Uh, the baby's born... Uh, the shepherds came, uh, and then, and then, kind of nothing for for roughly a month. Uh, not like 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 they had the circumcision, and and but like you know he hasn't transformed. He hasn't he hasn't gone king of the universe yet, as far as they can tell. He's he's done some baby things. We'll, we'll come back around to this idea a bit later on, but uh, it'd be a bit of a, a bit of a limbo for them in a lot of ways. A bit of a tricky situation. But as we encounter this this kind of fairly remarkable story of what happens in the temple in the early uh, an early moment in the life of Jesus, we're led to ask these two questions uh, that, that come into the story. Um, 
which, which I think Mary and Joseph would have been asking as well in a lot of ways. Uh, two questions that we're driven to here and which we get answers to, in, at least in part, in this story. First question, what kind of saviour is this Jesus? And second question, who are the people that he has come to save? So, so first question, what kind of saviour is Jesus? Maybe, maybe we should even broaden that out just a little bit further and say, who is this kid? Yeah. What's he like? What's, what's going on here? What's he come to do? Uh, we're going into our Christmas series in t- soon, in t- Matt mentioned it, entitled uh, Joy to the World. You could just as easily ask the question, what child is this? You know, if anyone knows the song. Um, perhaps the, sorry? Yeah. Uh, perhaps the, the clearest part of the answer to that question, though, is that he has come to bring salvation. Uh, we we get this rescuer thing very clearly, especially in this passage that we've got today. Uh, look briefly uh, with me. Uh, there's a few things that happen in the story. In, in verse 21, we read, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now notice the circumcision happens, but it's kind of the side note. The naming takes up the limelight here. like, like it, it, It's in the center and it gets a lot more attention. Jesus is his name, and it's not just for any old reason. Jesus means the Lord saves, or Yahweh saves. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent of this name was given to a fellow who got named Joshua, uh, who led God's people into the promised land. And now that old deliverer, Joshua, turns out to be a a little picture of the greater deliverer who was to come. Uh, And as we read on in this story, we reach the moment that, uh, that Simeon, you know, that I mentioned, he lifts up Jesus in his arms. Uh, and, and not for the first time in this story so far, I'm sure we're aware, someone is driven to sing by the glory of God that they see in Jesus. And he sings, I, I won't sing it, but he sings, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, notice that he, he doesn't say, Lord, you've allowed me to see a significant bit of your salvation. or Lord, you've allowed me to see kind of a hint at your salvation. No, he says, he says, uh, I've seen your salvation with my own eyes. Because Jesus is God's salvation sent to earth. And so when you look at him, you see salvation. But knowing that Jesus is the salvation of God, we get back to our main question then. What kind of saviour is he? What, what is this man that God has sent into the world to save his people like? And, and, and we find out some things in this story that might seem a bit unremarkable to us, really. Uh, they might seem a bit so-so. Uh, but when we put them in their context, we begin to realise just how remarkable, how marvellous what's happening here is. Probably the first attribute of this saviour that we're going to get here uh, is is what we note from what hasn't happened since our reading last week. Kind of alluded to this before. Imagine you were Mary and Joseph again, right? And and you received the amazing news and the the child's going to be born and then the child gets born and the the shepherds come. But but the message said he's going to be a saving king who reigns forever. And then a baby gets born. In a manger, no less, you know, a feed trough. 
and they wrap him up in swaddling cloths. And, 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 and then, you know, the shepherds come and the angels short saw the shepherds, but Mary and Joseph don't see, get to see the angels, right? They, they just see shepherds. Shepherds aren't that remarkable. They, they come around every now and then. Uh, uh, and so, so the birth in some ways is quite unremarkable for Mary and Joseph. Wise men, not for another couple of years, right? Luke doesn't even make a note of them. And perhaps they've spent this whole time, you know, this whole last month, that first eight days and then the, the almost month after that, asking, you know, wondering, you know, when's it going to happen? Having these, is this it moments? You know, is, oh, is he going to do it now? Uh, he's opened his mouth. Is he, is he going to proclaim his king? Oh, he's saying gah. Yeah, he's going gah. Okay, all right. False alarm. Oh, he's doing this super intense look. Is he, is he going to transform into the great king? He's doing a poop. He's doing a poop. Um, you know, we, we love a story, don't we, where, where, the, where the hero comes in in power and just smashes it, um, where there's a great transformation and suddenly he is the, you know, got the, the shining crown and the lightning robes and stuff. But it's really just not what we get here, not what Mary and Joseph got here. Eight days pass, nothing. No, nothing to note anyway. No transformation, no crown, no lightning, just a baby, does baby things, wakes up for feeds, wets himself, you know, the usual. But, but we should actually marvel at what's happening here, rightly understood, because there's a, a reason that it happens like this. Jesus could have come down a full-grown man. He's God. He has that choice. <laughs> Uh, we, we start off as a baby. He didn't need to, but instead he chooses to be in so many ways everything that we are. He genuinely, humbly identifies himself with us, with people, lives a person's life. He grows normally as a normal child in every way but sin. Jesus isn't just a human in a merely symbolic way. He's not just it kind of looks a bit like a human, but actually, what? He's actually just pretending. No, no, he's really human. It's more than token humanity going on here. He feels like we feel. We read loads of times in the Gospels about Jesus feeling, you know, weeping, sorrowful to the point of death. Those are words that come out of Jesus' mouth. We read about him marveling about things, so being surprised by that, like, like get your head around it. Uh, he, he had a mind like us. We're going to see in next week's passage that he, he grew in wisdom. I, won't, I don't want to kill Matt's thunder here, but, but, but just, just take a sec. Get your head around that. Almighty creator of the universe comes down and, 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 and is so human that he grows in wisdom. It feels kind of weird to say it, doesn't it? He's even tempted like we are tempted. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But it's more than that. You see, not only is he in so many ways everything that we are, but he also fulfills everything that we're meant to be. And, and, and the things that we fail to be. Where we sin, he's perfect. Where we did not follow God's way, he does perfectly. 
And we see that beginning to work out here in the passage we're in today. His parents circumcise him and present him in the temple. And a couple of times there, Luke reinforces why they're doing this, because this is what the law of the Lord says. It's just a small example, but in the nation of Judea with national Israel before it, the people who had received the law of God but had two or one failed to keep it, right? Here's Jesus, and he does it. Jesus keeps God's law perfectly from birth. And more than that, from, from the heart, he keeps the law. We're going to see that continuing on throughout this gospel. And so our answer to that question, what kind of saviour is Jesus, is he is perfectly human. Not to say he's not God, by the way. He is God. He is God and man, 100%, both categories. But he is perfectly human. He is human just like us, grieved, tempted, feeling, struggling, physically tired at times. He is human, but he is perfectly human. He lives in the way we were made to live. He follows God perfectly. And that leads us kind of to our second question. What kinds of people did he come to save? And and what Luke does here is something he's going to keep doing for the rest of this gospel and through Acts. He's going to throw us a surprising definition of who God chooses to save and to use in his plan. Let me point you toward uh, three groups of people that God intentionally draws into the plan of salvation. And yet that would have shocked the people in the day that that these are the people that God chose to work through. And, And I think these are... People who rightly push on us as well and our definitions of who God saves and who God uses. First group, the parents, right? Now, we've, we've met Mary and Joseph already in the story. Um, not personally, I presume. Good. Yeah. Right. Um, no one's delusional. Good. Uh, Mary and Joseph, we've met them um, and we know a little bit about them, right? On the, on the positive side, they seem to be pretty devout people. At least Joseph also is in the line of David, which is positive. Uh, On the negative side, they come from Nazareth, a.k.a. the dump of Israel. Uh, But in this passage, we learn uh, two new and very specific things about Mary and Joseph. Um, One one isn't that new, is that they, they desire to live God's way. As Israelites, they're obediently having Jesus circumcised and presenting him at the temple in accordance with the law. But, but secondly, and this, this was the one that probably would have come as a shock, Luke says something here that, that, that we might skip over but would have stuck out like a sore thumb to the original reader. Right? When they presented Jesus at the temple, we read in, in verse 24 there, to, uh, they came to offer a sacrifice according to what's said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, Luke could have just said they came to offer a sacrifice, but he specifies what the sacrifice is. And that might not seem like a big deal for us, but it's really significant. You see, in the Old Testament, when God laid down the law for what you sacrifice when you have a firstborn, this wasn't the normal sacrifice. In in Leviticus chapter 12, we see God command a sacrifice of a lamb and a pigeon or, or a dove. But the lamb is probably the critical one. And then, but then in, in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, there's this allowance. If a lamb couldn't be afforded, if they're too poor to afford a lamb, to even bring one single lamb once in their life for their firstborn child, well, then they could bring two pigeons or two doves. So, so God is intentionally 
not just saving, but working through as critical people in the story here, the poor. In fact, two of the most significant figures in the first chapters of this gospel, Mary and Joseph, are dreadfully poor, judging by what's just happened. <coughs> Is that how we think of the poor? We, we can fall into, I think, two main pitfalls here as, as, as Christians that are, that are pretty common. Um, we can think or at least act as though we think that the poor are beyond saving. Um, this, perhaps when we think of the poor, we think of starving people in Africa. Let me, let me just push a bit of definition into a, into a local context. Think of, think of those who you might instead define low socioeconomic, perhaps, um, if, that, if that makes this easier or more difficult. Maybe some might want to reach out to the poor. Um, you know, this is our other pitfall. You want to reach them, but really we don't expect that they would be instrumental in the church. We expect kind of the people who are business leaders or, or well off to be the people who are leading at the front. Perhaps that person could get up and give a testimony, maybe we think. But, but as long as it's overseen by the real leaders, you understand. But, but what if a poor person... Genuinely poor person, someone who has lived in generational poverty, right? Not who's going through a little bit of a rough patch. Someone who didn't have the money to buy lots of sets of clothes, wore the same thing every week. What if that person, uh, the person who walks rather than driving, you know, because they can't afford a car, not because they want to get healthy. What if that person was up the front every week? Would that feel odd to you? What if they were the preacher? What if they were the pastor? What if they were the person who you're submitting yourselves to as the leader of the church under Jesus? Our church so often, it seems to me, um, our churches, plural, not just our church specifically, suffer because of this. Now, this isn't a case of we're not being inclusive and therefore the poor are suffering. It's a case of we're not... We don't include the poor, and therefore our churches suffer for the lack of them. Uh, we, we build up these blind spots, these tolerances to, to materialism and to, 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 frankly, wealthy living that we don't even see as wealthy living because there isn't someone there who can challenge us and go, hang on a minute, like, is that really good gospel stewardship of what you have? Is that really necessary? Is that really something you couldn't be supporting the poor with or, or using for the, the gospel of Jesus? The story of Jesus' life allows in no way for either of those two things, right? We can't have those views of those living in poverty. Let's be super clear that the fact that Mary and Joseph were poor really gives us one option for how we see Jesus. Jesus was poor. Jesus didn't have money. And, and like we said, he's God. He could have come however he wants. This is how he chose to came, come into the world. If you're a Christian, you've trusted a poor man to save you. You don't want poor people leading? Too bad, right? The leader is poor. We, you, know, you may be able to change who leads the local church, but you don't get to change the leader above that leader. right? Jesus is the leader, and he chose to be poor in his life on earth. And so now we've met the parents, people number two, right? 
uh, we get to meet the prophets. Uh, Simeon and Anna. Um, we're only told that Anna is a prophet, but, but Simeon, we can fairly safely say, is a prophet because he is filled with the Spirit and he speaks a message from the Spirit of God. And if you were going to define what a prophet is, you'd probably say that's what a prophet is. Uh, but these two, although brief, they're significant figures here. Uh, God decides these two are the first people that are going to outright recognize who Jesus is. Now that, that's a big role. That's a significant thing that happens. God's revealing it to him. Um, sorry. By God's revealing it to him, Simeon will recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the salvation sent into the world. More than that, we'll look at it in a bit. But, but, but notice how significant that is. Who, who remembers? You know, the disciples of Jesus, when do they figure out that Jesus is the Christ? It's not for a while. Like Luke 9, we got, we got, I can't count, seven chapters until then, right? A bit more, part of chapter two as well. They walk with Jesus. They see the miracles of Jesus. They hear the teaching of Jesus. And it's only by Luke 9 that Peter finally says, you're the Christ of God. And even then he probably doesn't quite get what it means. <laughs> Not in the same way that Simeon obviously does here. And yet here comes this stranger danger Simeon, right? Like, like the, the weird old guy in the temple. And, and the moment he lays eyes on Jesus, he knows because God's spirit reveals, his, reveals it to him. This is the savior of the world. And he believes it. Month old baby. You seen a month old baby? You ever think you're the savior of the world? Like, like no, of course you don't because they're not Jesus. But also, it's a remarkable thing that happens. He, he grabs him. He goes all Lion King. He lifts him up, right? And, 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 and Anna is, is really similar. She just knows this is it. And she becomes one of the first evangelists for a baby, you know? She's not scared. Before Jesus can talk, she's telling people, this is him. This is the promised one. You're waiting for the consolation of Israel. Here it is, you know? But step back again. Let's, let's look again at these two people through the story and get a bit more of the detail because we get lots of detail about these two. God's challenging our perceptions again of who it is that he saves and who it is that he uses. Simeon we don't get an awful lot about, really. Uh, we get the, the vibe rather than the explicit message that he's been waiting a while for this. You know, we don't get told how long it's been since he was told that he would see the Christ before he died. But it seems like, from what he says, that he's getting on a bit now. It's been a while. You know, when he sings his song, he says, I'm ready to die now. You know, it would be odd if he was 23, you know. Anna, we get quite a lot of info on, funnily enough. She's of the tribe of Asher. What does that make Anna? Makes her an outsider. Makes her a foreigner. Asher was one of the ten northern tribes of Israel uh, that, that never really got themselves back together as God's people uh, after they got uh, placed in exile, although many in, ended up being the Samaritans uh, who were frankly despised by, by people in Judea. Uh, and, that, and that's where we are in this story. We're in Judea. We're in Jerusalem, the center of it. Right? And, and here's Anna, the tribe of Asher, the outsider. And that's not all. She's specifically called old, not like Simeon. Like, like Luke goes to, to, to lengths to tell us that she's old. Some people think, some commentators think that the Greek here implies that she had lived 84 years 
after her husband died. <laughs> Do a bit of maths, right? Like, like over 100, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that's old. That's old by our modern standards with our medicine and things. That's, that's real old. You know? But again, that's not all. Find something else out about her. She's not just an outsider, not just old. She is alone. Widowed. And widows were some of the most vulnerable, voiceless people in, in that day. And yet God chooses to speak through Anna. Through this old outsider widow. He chooses to make her an evangelist, a prophet even. Hard to imagine Luke describing her in more marginalized ways, isn't it? Outsider, old and alone. A foreigner an elderly widow. And yet it is Anna and Simeon that God reveals his saving work to here, more clearly than it's been revealed to anyone up to this point. In a temple filled with significant priests, right? They are in the temple in Jerusalem. High priests kicking around here somewhere, right? Not him. None of the priests. Simeon, the old dude, and Anna, tribe of Asher, who no one married for 84 years, who was old and distant. Doesn't that push against us a bit? Doesn't that push against our ideas a bit? When you look at an old person, a lonely person, a marginalized and distanced person, a person who seems out of place on York Peninsula perhaps, a person who others might tell to get out of here and go home, do you think that person could be God in God's sights as the object of his saving love and that person could be used greatly by him here for the glory of his name here on York Peninsula? And so we've got, we've got, we've got our two groups. We've got the parents and the prophets and our final group here is the nations. If you like alliteration, I just broke you, I'm afraid. Uh, you could go with the peoples if you really wanted, but nations works better. Uh, the nations don't feature specifically, aside from Anna, I suppose, um, who, is, who is the tribe of Asher, so she's short of pseudo in that category. But we get this strong indication in this passage that the salvation that Jesus came to bring is so much bigger than anyone was expecting at that point. Simeon sings this song, right? And he says... Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus comes to break down borders, to bring in people into his kingdom from every people group on this planet and we should be grateful for that by the way because in case you weren't aware that's us uh it's odd christianity became a bit western at some point but it wasn't originally we were the gentiles right we're the distant people if you um ever read about the ends of the earth in the bible and the gospel going to the ends of the earth and you ever wondered where are the ends of the earth relative to you know jerusalem where that was first said welcome you're in the ends of the earth um not to say that we shouldn't be going to those who are far off from us, but, but this would have been a great shock to a lot of people, right? 
who were expecting the Savior to come, to be king in Israel, to kind of uh, defeat the Romans, get us our freedom again, and that's about it, really. This should rightly destroy, though, also our perception of boundaries, of those who are savable, or those who we should be building relationship with towards salvation. How do you think of people from foreign countries? Let me ask you that. Yes, it's not inaccurate. And yet, what do we mean by foreign? Yeah, often. Uh, often, often, honestly, people get treated with suspicion here more than other places in a lot of ways. Um, it's, it's just a reality. Uh, I work at the clinic. I think, I think it would be a really hard job to be a doctor in the Middleton Medical Centre if you're from India or Pakistan. Let me put that out there. Um, now, now, we've had some variable doctors from different places. That I, I, I'm not going to go into that because that would be breaking some professional codes. But, but, but we tend to give the benefit of, a doubt to, of the doubt to a white doctor where we don't give it to, say, a Pakistani doctor. It's just a thing. I'm sorry. I, I've seen it enough that it's just kind of obvious. Um, you know, when people ask you over the phone... When they're, when they're asking, oh, who can I book in with? And the question is, well, are they white? <laughs> I've had that asked to me. Uh, what difference does it make? But, but there's this perception here, like, like, and it's, it runs deep, and we don't identify it even as, as racism, and yet there is, plain as day, that's what it is. And, you know, some build up trust. Sometimes we like a, a, a doctor from another country. And, 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 but, but it's harder for that person to build trust, you would have to say, than for a, a white doctor from Adelaide to build trust. And yet God looks at, at the immigrants in love and he chooses to work through them and to draw them into his saving plan. Once again, thank goodness, right? So that must be our view as well, especially as we are the saved foreigners, you know? We are the people who were far off. Maybe the third question we should have asked. Um, I know I said two questions at the start, and, and I'm, I'm breaking my promises all over the shop here. But um, third question, which, which we've alluded to here, is how is he going to save these people? What's he going to do to rescue all of his people? And we read in Simeon's prophetic word to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is one of the first whiffs of the cross we get in Luke's Gospel. The Saviour will be opposed. In fact, he's come to be a sign that is opposed, but he will reveal the hearts of men and women. As Luke's Gospel and Acts develop, uh, the meaning here is going to become clear. He's going to be opposed to death. He's going to reveal the sin in the hearts of people and his death will deal with the, with the sin in the hearts of the people who trust in him. The one who is just like us, 
in his humanity and completely fulfills righteousness. He's going to save his people, in even, even the least and the lowest, by dying for them. I want to finish today on two short notes. Uh, first, we have a perfect, marvelous Savior who genuinely loves us. That's really evident here. Even though we should rightly be more than marginalized by him, judged by him would be appropriate. At great cost, he draws we poor, undeserving sinners to his love. You, know, you may not be physically poor, but, but spiritually, we all came to Jesus with nothing. Less than nothing, you know. Smelly, nasty, full of sin. And he shows us love. Second, we need to take a hard look at ourselves as people. Yeah, maybe this isn't the kind of getting towards the end of the year, nice, friendly message that we want, but this is the one that this passage drives me to, so I'm just going to go it anyway. <laughs> we often look down on the poor and the marginalised, sometimes without even realising it. Often without realising it, really. But this passage and, and Luke's gospel as a whole, it just doesn't allow it. It makes it clear these are the people who walk most freely into God's kingdom. You know, Matthew's gospel, when he gets to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. When Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, he says, blessed are you poor. Now we can debate what that means. But there is this focus again and again and again. Well, the poor are the people who are easily coming into the kingdom because, because they know they've got nothing. They know their need. They're not the only ones who are saved in Luke's gospel, don't get me wrong. And before we say to ourselves, I don't, I don't look down on the poor, because I, I would find that easy to say, right? Let me give you a couple of, a couple of just barometer questions there. How many people do you know who are specifically poor? Not know like I'm aware of their name. Know like friends with no. They exist here. Trust me. If, if you think to yourself, we live in a relatively wealthy region, um, A, go on the Australian Bureau of Statistics and prove yourself wrong. And B, uh, just... just just understand from me, you're wrong. <laughs> there, there are a lot of wealthy people around here. There's a lot of people who don't have a lot either. How many people do you know who are from a, a marginalised minority? Uh, we, we really do marginalise minorities here on your peninsula. In the city, when you have a marginalised minority, there's enough people in the marginalised minority that they all get together and they kind of have their group. It's a minority group. Whereas here, it's a minority couple of three or four people. Um, We've just got just small enough a population that a person from another ethnic group, for instance, is probably just one of a few of their, their people here. How many of those people share your table? That's a challenge for me. How many of the poor, how many of the marginalised do we actually have in our homes? Often the church has treated it like it's an outreach ministry, like, like um, it's something that we should go and work in a soup kitchen. Nothing wrong with soup kitchens, love a good bit of soup. Uh, but, but 
we're called to a, a much more fundamental hospitality than going and running a soup kitchen. We're, we're called to share our, our, our own soup pot. Um, called to go to lengths to, in, to involve those people in our lives. I'm, I'm, I'm going to end us on that note of challenge because our tables may not have been open to those people, but the table of Jesus is. Um, why don't I pray for us? Jesus, um, I just want to confess this is a this is as much of a challenging message for me as it is for anyone. Um, I, I have for a long time, um, a long time believed that we should uh, go to lengths to reach the poor and go to lengths to reach the, uh, the distant and the marginalised, and yet um, there's been plenty of times in my life when it hasn't really reflected in what I've done. Lord, we know all the best roads are paved with good intentions. No, Lord, we need more than intentions. We need you. We need, we need to see the glory of your gospel. Show us, Lord, the love that you poured out and that you pour out still. And, Lord, pour it out through us. Um lead unavoidably into our lives the people that we would find uncomfortable and lead us to go out and find those people as well to be to be willing to step outside of comfort for the sake of, of your kingdom lord for the sake of the glory that's been shown to us in jesus Lord, make our tables places that welcome those who are distant, marginalised, poor, old, widowed. Yeah. Show us your glory, Lord, and change us to be more like you, Jesus. we rejoice because we are people who have been invited around your table we ask that through us you'd fill the rest of the empty seats in jesus name